It's interesting that as people really fill themselves up from the inside out with pleasure, among other wholesome beneficial experiences, craving lessens. Because the biological driver of craving is an internal sense of needs unmet. And as you actually internalize repeatedly experiences of needs met, you gradually dial down the machinery of craving and you increasingly enter the next moment feeling already full. So you don't need to chase pleasures outside you. More and more, you just carry a quality of well-being, delight and gratitude, awestruck gratitude, wherever you go. Hi, and welcome to Voices of Esalen. I'm Sam Stern. Today, my guest is Dr. Rick Hansen, a psychologist and author whose interests lie in the meeting of modern neuroscience and ancient contemplative practices. Rick is the author of Buddha's Brain, Just One Thing, Hardwiring Happiness, and most recently, Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength, and Happiness, which discusses using positive neuroplasticity to develop vital inner strengths like grit, gratitude, and compassion. Rick is a senior fellow at the Greater Good Science Center at UC Berkeley and is just basically a wise, compassionate, thoughtful resource. Rick Hansen, thank you for joining us again on Voices of Esalen. Oh, I'm very happy to be here. It's an honor. You're our first return, first repeat podcaster, because I got got so much out of your the first time that we talked when we spoke about just one thing. And and today I thought we could kind of continue our discussion and and focus a bit on your new book, Resilient, How to Grow an Unshakable Core of Calm, Strength and Happiness. What a good topic, including in these very turbulent times. I I thought it would be uh, germane to the discussion at hand if you could begin by again uh, stating what is the human negativity bias. Oh, sure. It's this idea that's very well established in brain science that all of us know well, that we tend to remember or be really affected by and learn from in the deepest sense, including emotional learning, somatic learning, social learning, etc. We learn most from painful, upsetting, irritating, hurtful experiences. And meanwhile, Ordinary experiences of finishing a load of laundry or having a nice encounter with someone else or enjoying a meal, it might be momentarily pleasant, but it washes through the brain like water through a sieve while the negative experience is caught each time. That makes me say, metaphorically, that we've got a brain that's like Velcro for bad experiences, but Teflon for good ones. And this is Mother Nature's plan to keep her little critters alive in horrible conditions. Mm. In really horrible conditions, the negativity bias is useful. And under the normal conditions of many, many people today, most of the time the negativity bias creates a lot of unnecessary suffering and unnecessary cycles of conflict with other people. It's like mother nature is tilted toward raw survival and therefore against quality of life. So if we tilt toward what is genuine, never faking it till you make it, no rose colored glasses, no pie in the sky, the real, seeing what's really true, not making it more than what it is, but not letting it be less than what it is. So if we tilt in that direction, as we move through our day, or more specifically, depending on the kind of muscles, quote unquote, you want to grow inside yourself, if we tilt in that direction toward the positive and toward the internalization of it, then we're just leveling the playing field. So a large part of your work is encouraging people to sit or to be with 
positive experiences. It, it seems that there's a, a quote that I pulled from your book, enjoying life is a powerful way to care for yourself. And you go on to say that it's not the million dollar moments that we need to be paying attention to. It's more the tiny positive things that present opportunities for us to stay with that moment. That's right. And if I could just make two points about that to put it in context, um, I think the most primary practice or way of being, uh, ways of engaging the mind is to simply be with what's there. Feel the feelings, experience the experience, unpack things, uncover things, tease them, the elements apart of the tapestry of experience, sense down sometimes to what's deeper, more uh, more vital, perhaps younger. All of that's really important. And then for me, that's foundational. Nothing that I'm saying here is about turning away from the painful, the harmful, the, the, the unjust, the terrible, nor is it about downplaying it or minimizing it in oneself or in other people. And also, we need to do more than simply be with our experience or be with conditions. We need to work with them. We need to, as the Buddha taught in, in the, under the heading of wise effort, we need to prevent or reduce or uh, end entirely that which is painful and harmful, negative, in effect, for us and others. And we need to create, protect, and increase that which is beneficial, that which is uh, pleasurable, enjoyable, or helpful and useful for ourselves and others. And so that aspect of practice that I particularly focus on, which is around cultivation, as you said, how do we actually develop wholesome qualities of mind and heart is in the context of the primacy of feeling the feelings and not you know, using what I'm talking about as one more clever way okay. to avoid really feeling what we feel. So what, if I can echo what you're saying, it, it, it really is about a capacity to feel mm -hmm. deeply yeah. in, in kind of a, a training and yeah. deepening of experience. My focus is to work backwards from what we'd like to develop or grow or heal in ourselves. And then ask ourselves, okay, if, as it says in the book, well-being comes from resilience, because without resilience, you can't have sustained well-being in a, in a changing world. Where does resilience come from? Research shows, practical experience as well, resilience primarily comes from internal factors of various kinds, like grit or gratitude or happiness or love or skillfulness or mindfulness itself. Resilience comes from these inner strengths, these resources. So then the practical question becomes, how can I grow them? Sure, research again says about a third ballpark on average of our inner resources are innate. The other two thirds potentially relate to uh, things that happen to us in life and what we do about that. And more generally, what we do inside our own mind. Mm. So I'm really interested in that other two thirds of the pie, right? right. <laughs> that's the pie. That's where we can grow. So how do you grow strengths and what's good inside your life? So, yeah, you could say what I'm talking about is smell the roses. All right, sure. But that's the least of it mm -hmm. is to work backwards from what would be really powerful for me to have more and more inside me and with me wherever I go, including happiness or inner peace or love or self-worth uh, or social skills of various kinds, including with difficult people. And then how can I grow it? And then the how of growing it is really simple, actually. But you got to do both steps. You have to feel it. You have to experience it. You can't just plug a cable into the back of your head and transfer over the file of 
courage or self-confidence. You have to experience it yeah. or a factor of it. And then, critically important, in the brain, you have to turn that passing experience into a lasting change in your nervous system especially. Otherwise, by definition, there's no gain. You experienced it, but you didn't grow from it. And to me, that's the way to think about tilting toward positive experiences because that's a primary way of growing the good. But many of the strengths um, that we want to have experiences of to grow, I wouldn't even call them positive experiences. Like, for example, I've had moments with my, my wife, my longtime partner, many years, of um, realizing that things go better in an interaction if I uh, lean in rather than lean back, mm -hmm. literally physically. Or a moment ago, you pointed out to me that I have to be careful about tapping the table uh -huh. right there. Can I help that really land? Can I register? All right. The inhibition or the self-regulation around, okay, don't tap the table, even though I waved my hands like I was born in Italy, even though I was, wasn't. I grew up in Southern California. Uh, all right, I want to let that land. So that's what I'm really talking about. How can you steepen your growth curve every day and help yourself increasingly grow into who you want to be, which might include the uncovering of who you've always been, the good news of the deep, true nature way down inside already. So, yeah, you spoke about helping it land in the brain and, and kind of etch itself there. Yeah. How does one, I don't know, Do that? contribute to the growth? Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. So, But you're on the right question. How do we help it etch itself there, metaphorically speaking, right? Yeah. No sharp pieces of metal involved. Okay. Um, the summary of this is given in this cool saying from the Canadian psychologist Donald Hebb in his work, actually, neurons that fire together, wire together. So we have a two-stage process. First, we experience what we want to grow. So it really helps to see the relevant facts and then see it, feel it, receive it. So you think of those as three opportunities that people routinely miss. One, they don't see the good facts that actually exist around them. They don't see really uh, the ways in which other people care about them or respect them. They don't see the beauty around. They don't see the goodness in their own heart. They don't see it. Okay, second, even when you see it, a lot of times people see things. They go, oh yeah, I know you like me, but I don't feel anything. Or, oh yeah, I know I got all those things done. I didn't have any sense of accomplishment at each thing I actually got done today. Right. I didn't, I knew it. I'm not demented or psych, psych, psychotic, but um, I didn't feel it. So can you see it? Second, can you feel it? And then so often people do see it and they do feel it, but they don't receive it. They feel it, but they don't receive it. That's right. They don't take the extra. They don't get those. They, they don't keep those neurons firing together for a breath or longer, mm. so they have actually a chance to wire together. They and I go into in the resilient, and I have a lot of freely available materials, as you know, on my website and elsewhere. People can get into the detail of this, but the essence is really simple. You're trying to help a momentary pattern of activation in your brain that is the basis of the experience you're having. So you're feeling, right? You're trying to help that pattern of activation leave a lasting physical change behind. Without that lasting physical change behind, there's no lasting learning. Yeah. I know a lot of people who talk about tuning your body, you know, be aware of your, of your body, be mindful of the body, and that's great. But they brush right past the actual 
bodily implications of growth and healing. We are body full of mind. It is the body that makes the mind. It is the body that makes experience moment to moment to moment. And if we want to become happier, more confident, more determined, grittier, tougher, more committed to social justice, more skillful with other people, if we want to do that, we actually have to change the body especially in its nervous system. You can get complicated about this and all that, and there are uses to heal old pain, including trauma, to uh, address deep issues inside a person. But the essence is really simple. When you're already having, let's say, some kind of useful experience, beneficial experience, a useful idea, useful body sensation, emotion, intention, or even a sense of action, right? You got the good song going in your inner iPod. If you want to turn on the inner recorder, there are three things you can do that will really help. Any one is good and all three are even better. All right. First of all, stay with it for a breath or two or longer. It is stunning when you start to look at this, how often we blow right by the current good thing before it has a chance to sink in at all. Oh, yeah. So stay with it. Just kind of let yourself have it. Stay with it. And then notice what comes up, like feeling, oh, I don't deserve this, or, oh, they better not see me being happy. They're going to get mad at me. Or, oh, wow, you know, I, I don't, I don't, I got to keep going. Well, no, for six seconds, a breath. You can let it in. It's okay. Mm-hmm. So stay with it for a breath or longer. Second way you can help yourself steepen your personal growth curve as you go through your day and your life is to feel it in your body as much as possible. Sometimes what we really register is a useful idea. Like I, in my mid-20s, had the useful idea that growing up I had been a nerd but not a wimp. That's a useful idea. Other versions of that are the useful idea that your partner's alcoholism is not your fault, right? Or the useful idea that no matter what you do, they're never allowed to touch you in anger. Um, so those are useful ideas. But ideas alone are pretty superficial. Usually it's worthwhile to feel it in your body. And as you experience things more in your body, that engages neural processes that really help internalization. And a third little hack that's kind of cool. You can do it. And no one needs to know you're doing it. There you are in the business meeting. They're all rattling on, looking really stressed. But inside, you're like, taking in the good, growing the good inside. The third is focus on what is rewarding about the experience. Rewarding a fancy term for what is enjoyable about it or meaningful. What feels good about it? And it's kind of neat. As you focus on what is, let's say, what feels good about experiencing your determination, or fortitude, or what feels good about registering that you're not going to whack the table with your hands in this interview right now, or a moment of feeling respected by another person or listened to by another person. What feels good about it? As you kind of focus on and turn up the volume of what feels good about it, technically, briefly, that increases activity of two neurotransmitters, dopamine and norepinephrine in a key part of your brain that's the front end of much learning and healing and growing, the hippocampus. And as dopamine and norepinephrine activity increase in the hippocampus, let's say related to the sense of something being rewarding, that increase of activity flags the experience you're having at the time as a keeper for protection in long-term storage. Mm -hmm. 
super cool. And what I'm describing here, you know, people will do in 10, 15, 20 seconds, a dozen, two dozen seconds. It's not a big deal. It's easy to do. It's astonishing that we don't do it more. Mm. Me included. And arguably, I'm literally the world's expert in this. Literally. <laughs> which is weird. But anyway. And it's so interesting. We just keep on going. And the cool thing is to do what I'm talking about half a dozen or more times a day. Mainly on the fly. Just in the flow. Why not? Let yourself have it. And then occasionally, if you want, look for particular key experiences of resources that you want to grow inside yourself. And then those high-value moments really, really take in. I believe in your book you also recommend focusing on the parts of a task that may be onerous, focusing on the rewarding parts of that in oh, order yeah. to get your, in order to, to build your motivation. Like, for instance, you said maybe going to the gym and hopping on the elliptical, it might mm-hmm. seem intimidating. But if you are able to focus on the rewarding tasks, like I'll feel good yeah. if I do this, I'll mm-hmm. feel proud mm-hmm. uh, if I get there then that can direct you towards the gym where you hop on that machine. Yeah, you can use the, for me, I'm very engaged in the world, um, in in working with other people and in business. And I think about the implications for this in terms of social action and politics scaled up, as well as for physical health issues, like, for example, exercise. And one of the interesting ways to use these methods is to help yourself start wanting to do more of the things that are good for you that you don't currently really want to do, like go to the gym and get on that elliptical, let's say. So how do you motivate yourself? And one nice way is to have an experience that associates reward of some kind with whatever you want to motivate, which could also be what you want to motivate yourself to stop doing, like stop drinking so much or eating so many cookies or yelling at the kids. Uh, So... um, What you can do is, before doing something, have a feeling of the reward that you're anticipating. Like, for example, you'll feel healthier if you exercise. You'll live longer. You'll see your grandchildren. Um, You'll feel better about your own body, let's say. You'll be more vital. Um, So you're feeling a sense of that, not just knowing it. The idea is where we start. But the, you know, see it, feel it, receive it, right? Helping the knowing, the seeing, to become a feeling of what the reward would be while um, imagining doing the activity or relating the reward to what you want to motivate. So before doing it, you can do that. While doing it, while you're on the elliptical or while you're holding your temper with your teenager or while you are encouraging yourself to be more open and vulnerable or even more assertive with other people while you're doing that, tracking the rewards of doing that. And then after the fact, notice the benefits that are with you or look back on the experience you had and how it felt good to be that way. And if you do that then with repetition and, and, all, and use these methods of staying with these experiences so they can sink in yeah. and having a feeling of the embodiment of them, yeah, then more and more you will naturally lean in that direction. Just digging a little bit deeper about the embodiment piece, would you have any advice uh, for those of us who have a, a facility with the thinking part of the game, but but less it, it's less mm-hmm. natural to uh, understand what the feeling or the embodiment is? Yeah, a lot of people, including at Esalen here, like Charlotte Solver and others, Fritz Perls and others, have really taught wonderful things about become more becoming more aware of the body. 
John Kabat-Zinn, I believe, uh, one of the major teachers of mindfulness in America over the last 30, 35 years, I think the title of one of his books is Come to Our Senses. In other words, coming into the sensing. So there are ways to turn to trainings and methods and paths and books and teachers, guided practices of different kinds, in addition to my own, that are about developing more sensory awareness and then with that becoming more aware of emotion and uh, becoming over time more and more self-aware, more and more internally mindful of subtle states of mind, intentions, and getting more into real time with your own reactions. So the point is, if people are motivated to do that, they can definitely get more in touch with themselves. That was my own journey. I landed in adulthood numb from the neck down. Mm-hmm. I was a lot like Spock, mm-hmm. and I had to learn to be more like McCoy in the Star Trek metaphor, in a way. Uh, and uh, the last thing I'll just say about that, uh, in terms of uh, waking down, not just waking up, I have a friend, Samuel Bonder, who coined that phrase, waking down. It's really true. We can't just wake up. We've got to wake down, too. Uh, is to build up inside yourself a capacity to tolerate your own interior. If you think of a little kid, a baby, uh, they, already, they are very in touch with their feelings. You know, naturally, we are naturally in touch. We're naturally tuned into ourselves. And then gradually, as we grow up, we numb we or disown different parts of ourselves. Or if you imagine the mind is like a vast mansion with many rooms, we close and lock away certain basements or certain doors because what's inside there is painful. Or people told us it was bad, that part of ourselves was bad or something. And to be able to engage a journey of self-awareness and build the resource of self-awareness. That too is one more inner resource we can grow. Self-knowledge, self-acceptance, self-compassion, self-awareness. To do that, it's important to help yourself tolerate what you uh, encounter inside yourself and, and to remember that you're normal. There is what's called common humanity. Other people have locked rooms too. And the stuff in their locked up rooms smells just as bad as the stuff in your own basement. It's okay. Also know that that long term, um, there's such a relief to open the doors. And as has happened here so often at Esalen, let the feelings flow. Air out the room. Engage the two classic tools of the physician, light and air. And bring that light and air into your own locked away places in your own healing process. You mentioned in your book uh, a possible exercise could be keeping a pleasure diary. Mm. I wonder if you would mind speaking about that for a moment. We're pretty good at helping ourselves have states. So, for example, people are pretty good at helping themselves or others experience pleasure, let's say. Or to have a new idea, take on a new perspective. Or... Have a nice moment with someone. States are easy. Mm. But turning states to traits so that, for example, in terms of pleasure, you carry with you more a sense of trait happiness or trait enjoyment of life or trait capacity to take pleasure, including in subtle pleasures uh, like like beauty or, or the curve of a leaf or the sound of the sea, say here at Esalen, that is a resource that can be grown as a trait, the capacity to really, in a healthy way, enjoy pleasure. 
So having a pleasure diary is one way to help yourself recognize pleasure in your life. And in that recognition, have an experience of states of pleasure. And that's where we start, not where we end. Once we are centered in a feeling of pleasure in a healthy way, then we can engage the practices I talk about of enriching the experience by staying with it, opening to it in the body, and also absorbing it, like feeling it's coming into you or focusing on what's rewarding about it so you turbocharge the memory-making machinery inside your own brain, including the emotional memory-making machinery. And to finish on this, I, I identify as a Buddhist at this point, and I'm, whether one is a Buddhist or not, I think it's pretty clear that there's a lot of truth in the first and second noble truths that A, there is suffering, and B, a lot of our suffering is rooted deeply in our cravings for various kinds, including the craving of the ending of what's unpleasant and the grasping for what's pleasant and the clinging to what feels heartfelt. So it's interesting if you care about that kind of tradition, as I do, to consider whether uh, it's possible to savor and, and marinate in pleasure without being attached to it. And actually what I've seen is that so many people in modern Western consumer societies are living in the hell realm in terms of the Tibetan cosmology, the hell realm of the hungry ghosts, beings with godlike powers, sounds like modern techno technically centered societies, beings with godlike powers and enormous appetites represented as vast valleys. And yet the satisfaction of their appetites is really limited by these pinholes of a mouth. And what I see is a lot of people who chase pleasure, they experience it, but they feel those states so briefly that they don't fill themselves up. They're always running on empty, searching for the next high, the next fix, the next dopamine rush, the next accomplishment, the next positive response in their social media feed, endlessly hungry. And they're hungry because they, they never feed themselves deeply. They don't really internalize the, tr- the felt nurt- nutrients of beneficial experiences, in this case, pleasurable ones. And it's interesting that as people really fill themselves up from the inside out with pleasure, among other wholesome, beneficial experiences, craving lessens. Because the biological driver of craving is an internal sense of needs unmet. And as you actually internalize repeatedly experiences of needs met, you gradually dial down the machinery of craving and you increasingly enter the next moment feeling already full. So you don't need to chase pleasures outside you. More and more, you just carry a quality of well-being, delight and gratitude, awestruck gratitude, wherever you go, which paradoxically actually helps you see suffering more clearly Mm -hmm. and to allow your heart to be more readily moved by the pangs of others uh, because you're more able to tolerate that because there's well-being already inside you. It's pretty wild, isn't it? Yes, and I enjoyed the the section of your book in which you, you you talk about carrying this sense of calm and satisfaction with you, but it does not preclude aspiration. 
And what, oh, what, yeah, what you write about is, is aspiring without attachment. I yeah. wonder if you could speak about that for a moment. That's a really important topic, I think, for worldly people. Um, and you could apply it as well to aspiration and spiritual practice even, let's say. But how can we dare greatly, as Brene Brown puts it, and also how can we aspire to things like social change uh, or taking care of others, uh, let alone... Uh, aspire to our own self-actualization, the fulfillment and full expression of our talents, our gifts, and um, our values and what we want to help. How can we do that without getting driven or caught up in trying to impress other people or prove ourselves endlessly? Or, and, and how can we do that without getting too upset when our book only gets a one-star review on Amazon? How do you actually do that? Yeah. It's a great territory of inquiry. And um, I would just offer uh, a couple of hows that people can maybe take away yes, from please. a practical standpoint. Well, one is start being you know, more and more mindful and add to being already mindful, let's say, of the difference between the feeling inside, between drivenness and enthusiasm. Stressed, pressured, contracted drivenness. What's that feel like? I know that feeling state. You know, you got to have it. You're going for it. You don't care how you feel inside. You just, you know, maybe there's a kind of a irritability. Take out anybody who gets in your way. Yeah, not in a good way. Um, on the other hand, what about enthusiasm? Where you're goal-directed. You're on mission. You're on task. You're seeing obstacles. You're growing resources to deal with things. You're focused, you're firm, you're resolute, while also, as you're being enthusiastic, feeling contented already. Yes. That you're not doing, you're not pursuing your ambitions from a sense, from a place of lack mm -hmm. or something missing, which is a driver of craving, something missing, something wrong. Yeah. You can, you're engaging whatever that is, your work, your business, your child rearing, the garden you're growing, the fence you're mending. You're engaging that from a place inside that feels already content, already full. So, yeah, I'm reaching for the next thing. I'm going after the next big step while feeling, you know, I'm centered in an enoughness already. And it's really neat. People have fear that, oh, I'll be complacent. Yes. Actually, what you see is people who really open to and receive uh, feelings of contentment and gratitude already, that they've already succeeded a lot, they've already progressed a lot, they've already arrived a lot. People will take, and I've done this in my workshops a lot, a fair amount, people will take a few minutes with that, they might even kind of slow down for a day, but then always, it's like, all right, this is really cool, now what? Well, what I like to bring into being, how, what of my capacities do I want to express? People don't sit on their laurels. They keep on going. So that would be uh, right off the top, a kind of suggestion I'd make about how to deepen your capacity to aspire without attachment. Mm, I love that. Yeah, putting together the piece, the pieces of the puzzle the, of, of, of your work. A, a part of your work is, is this idea of agglomeration. And it's mm. about bringing in small dividends slowly. Yes, adding up over time these molehills grow yeah, that's to mountains. Right. And there's some point along the journey where one can experience, yes, I I am feeling more enoughness than lack. Yeah. And from that 
point on the journey, it becomes more becomes more easy to, to kind of, number one, feel the sense of calm and satisfaction, but number two, to, to gain more, yeah. to, to, to gain more of the... Yeah. Uh, all I can the, see you smiling right now. Maybe yeah. people can hear it in your voice, too. I'll just ask you one more question, Rick, since I have you here. Um, this is not really apropos of the rest of the discussion, but it caught my attention. Mm. Um, you, you write about forgiving yourself and forgiving others, and you, you write that there's two kinds of forgiveness, with full pardon forgiveness mm. and disentangled forgiveness. And I was wondering if you would mind speaking about that for a moment. That's a really interesting topic, including um, with its relevance at all scales from... Uh, our most immediate relationships all the way scaled up to looking at the world stage even or our own national politics. So if people wrong us, so let's let's take the case where you really have been wronged. You've been mistreated or maybe someone you care about has been wronged and mistreated. It's not in your head. It really did happen. All right. There's a natural rhythm of Going back to, as I said, three ways to practice with your mind, you know, let be, let go, let in. So there's a the initial phase of letting be where you, you feel it, you go through a phase of outrage maybe, of grief perhaps, of fantasies of vengeance. You just get through that. And at some point though, there's often a moment inside or a growing sense you know, as, they, as the saying has it, resentment is like taking poison and then waiting for others to die. That you're actually being afflicted by you, this sense of grievance you have. It's wearing on you. It's preoccupying you. It's keeping you awake at, at night. It's causing trouble in your relationships. Um, it's not making things better. With that. It's not getting that other person to cop to how they wronged you and making amends and making it right with you. It's just a stone in your heart that you're carrying around and you start moving into okay how can i how can i lay this down so in the context of that that's where the context of forgiveness begins but i think it's very important to set that context properly and not jump in jump into forgiveness prematurely and inauthentically right yeah really 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 important a lot of people jump too fast to forgiveness and like no and part of getting ready to forgive is telling the truth minimally to yourself if you can, to others who are allies, and then sometimes if you can, if it's appropriate and if it's safe, telling the truth to the other person, even if they don't want to hear it. And so you weigh those different possibilities, but minimally, knowing the truth, knowing what you see, knowing what happened, what were the facts, what are the relevant values, what was the impact? Um, claiming that truth, really, really important for people. And there's a dignity and a gravity in that. All right, that said, Often, so the classic forgiveness is the full pardon, I call it that, where you utterly waive their sentence, you commute their sentence, you bring them back in, you're willing to, for a complete restart, you just, it's kind of the classic, almost biblical form of forgiveness, you just utterly let it go. And I, and, and I believe in full pardons, and if, you, and if you can get to a full pardon, and you can imagine also how profound it is to receive a full pardon from another person. Uh, so there's something quite uh, magnificent, if it's authentic and real, to move into a full pardon. Okay, but what if you just can't do it and you still want to lay that stone down? Well, that's where I think disentangled forgiveness, a kind of a lower bar comes in, in which 
You might still be really angry at that other person, especially anytime you think about it. You might be actively pursuing justice and punishment for them, if only to teach others a lesson, perhaps, as part of the social space, as, as, as you're part of the tribe, perhaps. You may never want to see them again. You may want to kind of wish them well on the other side of the universe, as far as you're concerned. But that said, you want to lay down the grievance. You don't want to keep carrying it around. You want to disengage from the resentment. So how to do that? So anyway, so for me, it's useful to mark, you could say in a sense, these three spaces we can move through. The first space being where we really feel the grievance. We tell the truth about it. We feel the truth about it. We face the truth of the facts of what happened, the values or standards or rules or ideals that were violated, and the impact, the consequences for ourselves and for others. That then we kind of move through that often. Often we do it in sequence too. By the way, then we move into a more disentangled place where, all right, we're not actively uh, trying to punish the other person. We're not actively preoccupied with it, uh, but we're not ready for a full coming to peace with that other person, a full normalization of relations in the sense of international situations. And then maybe we get to a place ultimately where you know. I'm just going to let that go completely. Mm. Now, based on all this, I may choose in the future never to go into business with you again or sleep with you again, or we're done raising, you know, we're going to get a divorce. We're going to always be the two parents of this child, but we're not going to be married. That said, I'm just, I'm, I get it. And maybe I'll just finish on this point. One of the ways into a full pardon um, that can be useful make sure it's real for you and not merely conceptual, is to recognize how the other person has suffered in their way. It, I don't mean by this blame the victim or let them off the hook, but bring, into a, bring them into your heart. See if you can find compassion for them as a being. Remembering also that you can, you're retaining your rights. You can retain your view of things. Forgiveness does not mean approval. Uh, does not necessarily mean that you want to have anything to do with this person again in the future. Uh, um, you may feel that it's still appropriate for the wheels of justice to play out and for the sentence to be completed, perhaps, or something, uh, the fine to be paid or something, uh, reparations to be made or something. But deep down, you feel the being over there. You see the being behind the eyes of the one who wronged you. And you may need to look way far back or way, way young to find that being behind their eyes. But you have a sense of that. That's a powerful ally into full pardon. And another one is to have a sense of the 10,000 causes upstream that led this person to do what they did to you or those you cared about. So many things were in the mix. And again, this is not about letting them off the hook or just saying, oh, it's all for a reason. They did the best they could. No, I routinely think I don't do the best I can. And I'm not going to say other people did the best they could. Um, uh, That said, they did what they did based on thousands of factors, large and small, in their history, in their family, their family's family, family history, their genetics, the culture, the times, the place. And when you have a broader sense of the vast tapestry of reality, it we tend to suffer the threads less because we see them as part of a larger whole. Rick Hansen, thanks so much for joining us again on Voices of Esalen. An honor, truly, and a delight, really, to be here. 
Thank you for listening to Voices of Esalen. Today's show is produced in conjunction with Cheryl Franzel, Geraldyn Hess, Lori Putnam, Shannon Hudson, and Ian Golden. Our music is by Nico Holloman. If you'd like to hear more episodes, please find us on iTunes. And if you like what you're hearing, take a second to rate us and write a review. You can also find all of our episodes at esalen.org. That's E-S-A-L-E-N.org. Until next time, be well. <laughs>